be reading the Pentecost story today from Acts chapter 2. A lengthy one, so follow along verse 1 through 21 or listen closely to see where the Spirit might be leading you today. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because every one of them heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine. Peter stood with the other eleven apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen carefully to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. There seems to me to be a growing phenomenon and a certain intersection between technology and human beings' innate desires to connect to our roots. Have you noticed this? It's always been around, but it seems to have accelerated with the use of technology. Within minutes, any person in the world can begin an account on Ancestry.com and receive information that can help this person discover their family tree and fill in the blanks accurately with the names of relatives they might have never known prior to this existed from all over the world. It's not just a data bank, but an interactive support network where other users can help a person on the mission to know their relatives, both distant and not so distant. But in addition to Ancestry.com, now there are websites like AncestryDNA.com and MyHeritage, 
and FamilyTreeDNA and 23andMe.com and all of these websites, well, they actually allow DNA testing, the swabbing of the inside of your cheek, enclosing it, mailing it to these services, and you can quickly learn up to most cases at least five generations of your ancestry that way. I mean, that's weird. But how else are you going to find out your Icelandic, Swedish, and part polar bear? I mean, that's how you do it. So usually, these DNA sites, they're also connected back to some of the other sites I already mentioned, and then they help you fill in even more blanks when users began chiming in with their data and their results from all these tests. It's, it's a giant web of information. The world is shrinking every day, and now you can find your own place within the history of generations all from the Internet. Now, there's something very appealing, I think, about knowing one's place in this world, one's history, one's place within the pages of history. Knowing one's history, it, it seems to clarify one's present form and function in the real world today in which we live. But you see that very first Pentecost, when these people from all around the world were gathered, and the day that we celebrate today on this particular Sunday in the life of the Christian year, it is meant to serve as a reminder to Christians to stay connected to the bigger story, to our roots, our history, if you will. But the problem is, anytime we go to our Bibles and there are special effects in the stories, you know what I'm talking about? Special effects? Tongues of fire? I mean, come on. We modern people, we fixate our attention on the special effects and we miss the actual bigger, more important message that's trying to be delivered in the story. We've always done this, modern minds, with Moses and the Israelites. It's the miraculous parting of the Red Sea itself that we focus on instead of the story of a people called by God coming out of captivity with the mission to begin all over again. We get distracted when we read about the romance story of Ruth and Boaz because we, we focus on the romance, or we focus on the wheat and the threshing floor. But we miss the bigger truth to be conveyed. That people in the day and age of the story of Ruth and Boaz believed that Moabites were evil and worthless. And Ruth was a Moabite. That's the story. We miss it because of the special effects. It's a story about God breaking down the racism and the sexism and the prejudices and making the whole nation of Israel pay attention that God doesn't care where you're from. God doesn't care what gender or gender expression a person has. God is into breaking down walls and God can use anyone and has used anyone and can use anyone to do that. She had two strikes against her. She was a woman and she was a Moabite. We do the same thing when we read the miraculous story, the larger-than-life account of Jonah. We focus on the giant fish and what it must have been like to get gobbled up and puked out on the shore and walk away in fish slime. And I'll confess, getting eaten up and vomited out and walking away in fish slime should rightfully get our attention. But the narrow escape that Jonah makes, albeit covered in fish vomit, is not the point of the story. The bigger point of the story is that God loves the Ninevites just as much as God loves the Israelites. 
and that God wants Jonah to love the Ninevites enough to get off his duff, now covered in fish slime, and go out to their city and deliver a message of love and inclusion, making them equally a part of the family of God, regardless of which side of the border they lived on. And the irony of this satirical story, and it is a satirical story, friends, is that by the time Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, the king and the people have already decided to repent and play nice. And they've already recognized they were already included. They didn't need a fish-slimed prophet of Israel to tell them. I could go on and on about the trajectory of almost every larger-than-life epic story in the Hebrew Bible and even in the New Testament, but they're all generally about people's pride and prejudices being broken down by a loving, inclusive God. But I've run out of time, so let's get to Pentecost. No, let's back up to Jesus. Jesus and his ministry, he's witness eating with tax collectors. He's hanging out with women accused of adultery and with prostitutes. Now, Jesus' teachings, many times, they're actually start out like this. Oh, well, you read in your Bible that it said this? Hmm. But I tell you this instead. It was a refutation of what they thought was set in stone, their foundational belief system, because they had grown cold and exclusive in the way that they were living it out. And he could have inspired anyone to be his 12 favorites, but he assembled a band of ragtag disciples, of fishermen, tax collectors, outcasts, nobodies to be his favorite 12 because it represented the way he does things. God chooses the least, the last, the underdog, to do great things to show that it can happen with anybody. And these 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel, not because Jesus likes the number, but because 12 means all and all the tribes of Israel, which was everybody at that time that they knew about. So these same disciples, minus Judas, are all assembled seven weeks, 49 days, 50 days, the word penta from Pentecost. 50 days or so after Jesus had left them, and they're all in one place, along with every living person that they could drag there and name as a follower of Jesus. So probably around 120 total. Not exactly a major movement at this point prior to Pentecost. If I had more time, I guess I'd go into greater detail to tell you that Pentecost is the third highest, holiest day of Christianity after Easter and Christmas that it's a really big deal. I guess if I had more time, I'd tell you that it, it didn't begin as a Christian holiday, but it was a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, or Pentecost, which celebrated the giving of the Torah, in particular the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Luke, the author here of Acts, is making a parallel between the Jewish tradition and now this upstart little branch of vagabonds known as Christians. He's making a parallel. He is saying this, just as for Jews, the Exodus revelation from Egypt signals the birth of the chosen people of God. For Christians, the Pentecost story in Acts is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it signals the birthday of the church. A movement born out of the ministry of Jesus compelled by the Spirit to go into all the world and include everyone in God's loving care. 
whose ministry itself, Jesus' ministry itself, was a ministry of the forgotten, the uncelebrated, the outcast, and the underdog, as we've noticed already. And Luke, the author, tells us they were all there together in one place, all 120 of them. It would have included women and men, the 12, and any unnamed followers of Jesus they could drag in. You know, churches are always looking to beef up their attendance. 120 might have been generous, for all we know. The second large group in this area is denoted in the story as those living in Jerusalem. And it's unclear, but when you begin to look at the original language of the text in Greek before it spun off into so many different English translations, most modern scholars believe these were immigrants, not pilgrims or visitors, who had immigrated from other areas of the Roman Empire to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west of Jerusalem, and they were there. And as subjects of Rome, all of them would have spoken Greek, all of the people present, because that was the language of their captives, of the captors rather, the Roman military, and their, their entire living depended on being able to trade with people who spoke that language. So all of these people would have spoken Greek. They probably also all spoke their own native tongues from all of the places they were from. Now remember how I said we get distracted by the special effects when we read Bible stories? It's possible to do the same thing with the Pentecost story unless we have a clear understanding of who these people were. They do not speak in spiritual languages, like mentioned elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but these people speak in their native tongues. They're telling the glories of God, but in their own native, which would have been foreign tongues, not in the language of the empire of Rome, which they could all do. And the bigger picture here is that through being true to their own roots, who they really were, who they identified as, not pretending to be anyone else, this movement of the Spirit happens. And rather than requiring all of the people to speak one language, Pentecost gives power to this band of Jesus' followers to speak the languages of the world, to proclaim God's love for every nation, for every tongue, for every tribe, and to do so in their own languages of all of these people represented here in a way that was meaningful to the ones hearing it, not just to those delivering the message. There's probably a lesson in there, isn't there? Love isn't really love unless it's received as love by those doing the receiving. So in case they had missed it all in all of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible stories, in case they had missed it in the entire ministry of Jesus, Pentecost serves as perhaps the most personalized delivery of God's message. That if the people of God are to be about the mission and the message of God, it is always expanding the circle, drawing the circle of inclusion wider still. There are no nations, no religions, no races, no places on earth that are not meant to be fully celebrated and equally celebrated in God's realm of love and justice. And it was clear to them by this point that God knows no prejudice, that there is no limit to God's love, that God does not respect one group of people more because of what language they speak or because of what nation they call home or because of the color of their skin. Pentecost was to etch into their memories the fact that there is no length that the Holy Spirit will not go to in order to fan the flame of our hearts until love consumes all of humanity and we truly learn to live as one people. Pentecost was just 
one of many occasions where the Spirit of God was yelling at the top of their spirit's lungs, draw the circle wide. At any attempt to narrow the circle to minimize the full humanity of another person or of another nation has always drawn God's disapproval. The Spirit of God would be grieved. And this occupation by the Roman Empire of these citizens from multiple lands and languages is no different. Luke, the author, puts a famous passage of Scripture from the Old Testament on the lips of Peter as he preaches the church's first official sermon. I'm guessing this was just an excerpt because, you know, sermons tend to be longer than three or four verses, at least now, at least with this preacher. So it's a scandalous passage that he reads, written at a time of occupation as a part of the prophecy of the nation overthrowing the Roman Empire. He was making a very political threat. He read, I will remove the northern army far from you and drive it into a parched and desolate land. Why this prediction? Because the Roman Empire is doing the opposite of the way God's vision works for the world and the way things should be. They are clamping down. They are taking prisoners. They are making other human beings smaller and diminished. And God has always said, do the opposite. If you want to be in cooperation with my spirit, draw the circle wide. And old Peter, he dreams a dream. He quotes Joel in the last days, God will pour out my spirit, God says, on all people. My dear ones, we have an opportunity here and now in our lifetimes to fully connect the roots of our movement as the people of the spirit to the outpouring of God's spirit in our own day and age, in our present time. Now, unfortunately... The vast majority of the Bible Belt's tainted, distorted, narrow version of Christianity has forgotten that the trajectory of our movement has always been to draw the circle wide. Some have tried to do the opposite and do it in the name of Jesus. Many have forgotten the trajectory of the Spirit has always been outward, broad, welcoming, and inclusive. Many have given into the old ways of making rules and keeping imaginary gates for would-be participants in their flavor of the faith. They've made up their own formulas of the faith. They've made up their own rules and their customs that are neither biblical nor loving. One does not need, by the way, to invite Jesus into one's heart in order to be a Christian. There is no sinner's prayer Anywhere printed in the pages of the Bible, it says, Dear God, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Please save me from a burning hell, because I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. Keep me in heaven forever. Amen. There's nothing like that remotely within the pages of the Scripture. This was not the design of the, of the faith. The primary expression of one's faith is not what we believe at all about God, about Jesus. It is not what we believe about abortion or same-sex marriage or the current president or the past president or any political party or any social club. There is no re eternal reward. I've looked carefully for this in the scriptures. There's no eternal reward, especially designed for those that do not drink or chew or go with girls who do. <laughs> the message of Pentecost 
while fresh and afire with the Spirit, is no different than the ministry's message of Jesus. The message of Pentecost is not a different message than the message of Jesus. The message of Pentecost is not a different message than all of the stories in the Old Testament. The message of Pentecost is the same song and dance, but a new verse that most Bible Belt variety Christians have missed for a couple of generations. But it is the old, old story from Genesis to Revelation that God loves every single human being without restrictions or limitations and that everyone is included, that everyone is beloved, that everyone is fully welcomed into the fellowship of what we call the church. Full stop. Love your neighbor as yourself. The rest is all commentary. If you or your religious expression of the faith feel the need to put ifs, ands, and buts after or before love your neighbor as yourself, you need to ask yourself why you feel the need to be God's gatekeeper. Some of us, we don't know any better because that's the brand of religion we've been raised in so closely. But, but one more time, at Pentecost, the Spirit blew away the boundaries and the gates. All the people from all the places, all in their own native tongue, everyone heard the news and everyone was equally welcomed into the family of God. And there's an ancient Jewish proverb which says, Before every person there walks an angel announcing, Behold the image of God. The call of Pentecost, my friends, for us today, and I believe this with all of my heart, is to be that angel for others. Behold the image of God in you, and you, and you, and you. Something, someone sacred is coming behind me. It's my neighbor. Now, some of our sisters and brothers, oh, we've grown up not having too much trouble realizing that, that we're cherished, that we're beloved. But, but there are others, and there are some that in the name of religion have been ridiculed or made to feel less than. That gay or lesbian person who has been conditioned to believe they are less than 100% made in the image of God may never know how truly incredible they are unless you tell them. And if you won't, who will? That full-grown adult who harbors the incredible pain of multiple divorces has probably been made to feel less than 100% made in the image of God and mostly by religious people. What if your affirmation of that person as a human being who is 100% made in the image of God might be the only thing that would pull them out of depression long enough to remember their true identity as a beloved child of God. The world is literally saturated with pain and with brokenness. And what the world desperately needs today are people like you and me who will hear the Spirit's call to find a common language with our neighbors that will bring healing and facilitate wholeness. Now that common language might be pain. It might be burnout from narrow-minded religion because God knows there's enough of that to go around. The common language we speak and we find with one another might be a shared sense of humanity. And then that common language can be as simple as, Behold, the image 
of God. You can be someone else's angel, a messenger, bringing good news, which is literally what that word means in the New Testament. This kind of love on the DNA report should be present for every person of faith when it comes back from the, he- the heavenlyancestry.com. This kind of affirmation, it should show up on the personality traits of every person of faith from the creation to the deliverance of the nation of Israel to Ruth the Moabite to Jonah to Jesus, the lover of underdogs and outsiders. And it's the Pentecost message and it's the call upon our lives today. Draw the circle, my friends. And when you draw it, Draw the circle wide in the name of the one who loved without limits and whose spirit calls us to the same work today. Amen.